Well, if you would look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, for context, we will start in verse 1, but we're going to be focusing our efforts on verses 3 and 4. This is a critical passage. I think given the time in which we live, the sexual revolution at its apex, and all the fallout that comes from that. Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Lest you doubt the love of God, he gave himself up for us. That should chasten all anxiety and worry for, for the God's people. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we pray today that even in a difficult passage, as we see today, a challenging passage, that the preaching of the word, or rather the word preached, would provoke by the Spirit of Christ thanksgiving with your people, which indeed is a starting point for godliness with regard to our response to your grace in Jesus Christ. And we pray this for your son's sake and for the edification of your church. Amen. In my first pastorate in Cincinnati, Lebanon, north of Cincinnati, uh, the pastors had identified a particular man in our church, a, a, a lay person, but a man who was mighty in the scriptures, a man who was really able, had studied his Bible, didn't have a formal theological education, but you knew that he was a man who spent a lot of time in the Bible, and he had the, teach, the teaching gift, and he was very immersed in, in our church. And so we identified him as the one we thought would lead our men's ministry. So I called him up on a particular, I believe it was a Tuesday night, and I said, Mike, um, we would like to see you lead our men's ministry. Mike was so excited, I knew he would be. He appeared to love our church, and, and so it was a great conversation. We must have spoken about 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Well, early the next morning, I got a call from my executive pastor, his name was Jim. And he said, Brian, did you hear about Mike? I said, well, I talked to him last night. He said, when did you talk to him? I said, well, I, I must have gotten off the phone with him around 8.30. He said, well, he got arrested at 9 o'clock. Arrested? He said, yes. He went downtown Cincinnati and was soliciting who he thought was a 13-year-old girl. 
was an undercover agent. Needless to say, I was devastated. Went down to the jail to visit him a few days later. And uh, he had written the pastors a letter. It was a long letter. I still have it. And in the letter, he, he shared how he had gotten to that place. He said two weeks before his arrest, he had gone to a, a retreat put on by the Methodist church called the Emmaus Road Retreat. And he said in this letter that he had been hiding his enslavement to pornography and he had not shared it with us because he he wanted to put on a front for us and he didn't want to disappoint us and so he he decided to get vulnerable with the pastor leading the retreat and he said i just want to confess to you that i am struggling and have struggled for years with pornography the pastor looked at him and said me too. In other words, the pastor couldn't help him because you can't lead people where you're not going yourself. And two weeks later, Mike committed that, that tragic moral failure. One of the men that we had perceived as one of our leaders in our church was eat up with pornography and he decides to plead for help and the one he pleads to can't help him because he himself had the same sin problem. We're living at the apex of the sexual revolution. Revolution that really began in, in the 60s with the birth control pill and then went to a new level with the homosexual rights movement in the late 60s and then in the early 70s with the legalization of abortion so that you could have sex without any kind of consequences. And that revolution has not only devastated our culture, it has devastated the church. And even though the sexual revolution is relatively new in our culture, sexual sin and its horrific consequences and effects are not new. In fact, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul had to address this very sin in our present passage. Immorality was rampant in Ephesus. Because of the presence of the Greek goddess Artemis, or her, her other name was Diana, um, she was regarded as the fertility goddess. And so worship involved sexual immorality. And many of the believers who are in this church that he is addressing would have known experientially this kind of sin from their past. And so even though they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the remnants of the old self are prone to rear their ugly and devastating head given the right temptation and the right kind of pressure. 
That, that's why we see the beginning of this section really at, in chapter 4, where he says to put off the old self. That, what is the old self? It is our guilt. It's our corruption in Adam. And he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It begins in the mind, right? The Christian life is a life that is a cognitive life. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. It's an intellectual life. It's a renewing of your mind. And he says, in the renewing of your mind, verse 24 of chapter 4, we put on the new self. That new self is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity, our union in him, and the resources that we have in him as he lives out his life in the believer by the Spirit. And so Paul has been laying out this this program of what it means to put off the old self, to put on the new. And that brings us to verse 3, where he calls us to put off what is improper for God's saints. Notice with me in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Our covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now keep in mind, Paul is not giving us commands. A lot of people believe that if you obey these commands, then you can get right with God. Actually, that's primitive false religion. That is every religion in the world except evangelical Christianity. He is writing to those who've already been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he is writing to those who have been made alive in Christ, Ephesians 2.5. He's, he's, he's writing to those who have been by grace saved through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2.8. He is writing to those who have been adopted into God's family. They are God's dearly loved children. Ephesians 5, verse 1. But now that we're in the family, there are family rules. When we adopted Sephon, he learned there's a certain way to conduct yourself as a pain. He learned there are rules of the household. All right? And that's exactly what Paul is laying out. There are rules, there are ethics of the family of God. On Easter last Sunday... The reverend, and it's hard for me to even say that, as this man got a divorce in 2019, charged by his wife uh, for trying to run her over in a car, a man who holds to abortion to the point of birth. But the reverend, Raphael Warnock, the new Georgia senator, tweeted these words on Easter a week ago. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Whether you are a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. At a Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia, well, that's a damnable heresy a condemnable heresy. That's not what Paul is saying in the least. He is showing us as believers, those who have been redeemed, 
how to flourish like a tree planted by the waters, as we just sang. How to flourish as God's people, but also how to be a witness of the gospel that brought us into God's family through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to note, as we get into this, verse 3 begins with the word, but. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named. This clearly is elaborating on the command found in verses 1 to 2 where he tells us to imitate God as dearly loved children and live, he says, a life of love and walk in love, the ESV says, as Christ loved us. And so this is sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated supremely that secured the forgiveness of sins for us, Ephesians 4.32. Now, as beneficiaries, so he's writing to Christians, as beneficiaries of that sacrificial love, that sacrificial substitution, Paul calls us to self-sacrifice in imitation of God rather than self-indulgence. That's what he's getting at here. And, and so Paul seems to be addressing the irrational idea that you can be a follower, a lover of Jesus Christ, and have self-indulgent, unrepentant sins at the same time. It's irrational, it's unbiblical. For a professing believer, there really are only three choices. Ultimately one. But the way our sinful minds rationalize, the first choice is to get rid of all high-handed sins, sins of malice. It's to put to death our deeds which are on the in the body, as Colossians 3, 5 says. It's to kill sin lest it be killing us, to borrow John Owen's famous phrase. The second choice is to, is to dramatically compartmentalize your life so that you essentially are living a life of self-denial. It's almost like a, a psychopath kind of life. The third choice is to be willing to live with a kind of cognitive dissonance in your soul as you are committed to two contrary and incompatible things, Christ and your sin. Well, that's just impossible. Paul ultimately says the first choice is the only option for a Christian. The only option, hence he says, notice, put off, if we want to use the verbs from the end of chapter 4, sexual immorality. Now that word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. But this is an umbrella term. It describes all sexual expression, all sexual acts outside of the covenant marriage between a man and a woman, even if it's consenting adults. 
That's porneia. It, in, it includes por- premarital sex. It includes adultery, incest, homosexuality, pornography, reading erotic novels, and lusting. And the list continues. This word is the first word in Galatians 5.19 when Paul lays out the works of the flesh. The first work of the flesh, he says, is pornography or porneia. It's It's a practice for which we are commanded to abstain. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, we are to flee. 1 Corinthians 6.15, the, the interesting word there, flee, is, where we, is the word fugitive, where we get the word fugitive. It, it, it's the word that if one is unrepentant with this sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.9, this person will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why sexual immorality is a slave trader that wears the costume of an abolitionist. It appears to offer true freedom, but actually it can only provide bondage. 2 Peter 2, 19, Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Unrepentant sexual immorality would fall into the category uh, that Hosea rebukes in his prophetic book in chapter 9, verse 10. These are horrifying words. Speaking of the unrepentant northern kingdom of Israel, he says they consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. They consecrated themselves to the things of shame. That's what it means to be enslaved to sexual immorality. Consecration, what does that mean? You, you, you commit, you devote your life to that which you love most. With that said, It's remarkable that Paul would have to say this to Christians, given what Jesus has done for us, given the resources we have in Christ and the Holy Spirit. But we know much of the world is enslaved to immorality. I remember in 2003, I was pastoring in Cincinnati and I had flown down to uh, Destin, Florida to do a wedding for a friend. And so I was going to fly out early Sunday morning so I could get back to preach that morning. And when I got into the taxi cab, I noticed across the street there was a parking lot. It was 5 in the morning, maybe 4.30 in the morning. There was a parking lot that was completely filled with cars. There was no parking place. And then I noticed... It was a strip club. And it grieved me to no end that on a Sunday morning in the Bible Belt, 
Destin, Florida, at five in the morning, there were married men, single men, in there enjoying, lustfully so, somebody's daughters, somebody's granddaughters, somebody's nieces. It grieved my spirit. It shocked me. Of course, it shouldn't have shocked me, given the depravity of our sin nature. But it should shock us when that sin's in the church. It should shock us when that sin is in the church. Of course, to get to that point where you would go to a strip club is to be at the place where Jeremiah says of unrepentant Judah. I've always found these words remarkable. They were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. He says that a few times in his book. They had gotten to the point where they couldn't even blush over their sin. But to get to that place publicly, where you you don't even blush, unrepentant sin in your private life is generally the fuel behind that. You don't get there overnight. You don't just wake up and your conscience allows you to go to a strip club. It started way before that when sexual sin was normalized in your private life. And and that's why I believe the biggest issue with regard to sexual sin in our churches today is not adultery. As horrific as that is, it is horrific. It destroys families. It destroys our witness. It's not divorce. As horrific as that is. The biggest issue today in our churches is pornography. Because it's a way to commit sexual sin without having to deal with public scorn. I believe porn is the great gateway for all other sexual sin. You show me someone who's committing adultery, you show me someone who's committing any other kind of sexual sin, and I guarantee you could trace it back to pornography. One internet expert wrote this following letter to his pastor. I I read this in a book by Philip Ryken. He says, I'm deeply concerned about the avenues for decadent content that have been opened into the home. What has been alarming to me is that out of a dozen or so close friends that I have talked to, all but one has admitted that they struggle in this area and frequently fail. All of these friends are very committed followers of Christ. And I would would beg to differ on that, but at least that's their profession. Many involved in full-time Christian service. What I see is that Christians who would have never even considered going into an adult store are renting an X-rated movie 
are dialing a 900 number are now continually failing in this area because of the anonymity and free and easy access to this type of content on the internet. What is worse is seeing the grip and pull it has on people once they start down that path. Based on my experience, the internet has become Satan's number one tool in the 21st century. And it seems to be a more silent infection into the body of believers because it typically only involves the user and their computer. And the statistics would support that assessment. Data from the National Coalition for the Protection of Children and Families. Listen to this statistic. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. 35% of all internet downloads are porn. That's over one out of three. Webroot.com, every second of every day, that website says, every second of every day, 30,000 users are watching porn on the internet. By the way, you know what the most, the biggest day for porn? Sundays. It's horrifying. An average of $3,100 are being spent on porn on the internet every second of every day. And Paul says, this shouldn't even be named among you. It's improper. You've been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have been sealed by the third person of the Trinity who is all-powerful, the Holy Spirit. You are a child of God. You are a saint. You have been redeemed and resourced by God for God. He goes on and he says, put off impurity. Again, we're taking the verbs put on, put off from chapter 4 at the end because he's continuing that conversation. Now, impurity refers to the uncleanness of our thoughts. It starts in the mind. Never stays that. He's saying you don't just kill sin in your deeds. You don't just kill it in your actions. You do it in your thought life as well. He, in fact, he pairs porneia and this word here for impurity in two other places. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh, and in Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul recognizes they go hand in hand, sexual immorality and impurity of your thought life. Impure thoughts bear the fruit of sexual immorality, sexual immoral behavior. And that's why, let's go back to chapter 4, verse 23, the way you put on the new man is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul says you can't do this without a Bible. Without a Bible, you're going to war without armor and without weapons. 
You can't do it with a closed Bible. You're mincemeat if your Bible's closed. Third, he says, put off covetousness. Maybe your translation reads greed. That, that's more than just wanting something that we don't have. I mean, we're, we're desiring creatures, and so uh, it's more than that. It's wanting something so bad that it controls you. And you know it's controlling you because you're either jealous that someone else has it, envious, or discontented and angry, or all of the above. It's being dissatisfied with God's provision. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, if you aren't content with what you have, you wouldn't be satisfied if it was doubled. Because that's not your problem. Your problem is deeper than that. Covetousness debates, it questions, it disbelieves God's wisdom for you. God's sovereignty in your life. God's love for you. And it robs our ability to love our neighbor because our neighbor has now become our competitor. That's covetousness. It's what causes that tinge of, of, of disappointment and jealousy and discontentment and frustration when someone else has what we think we need for a satisfying life. And, and those negative emotions actually are grace messengers telling us that we have set our heart not on the creator, but on the creation. And the creation is going to disappoint you one out of a hundred, a 100 out of a hundred times. Puritan uh, George Swinock, I love this statement. I think I have it on the board. Those who have never seen the sun, S-U-N, are amazed at a candle. Likewise, those who have never known the blessed God are fond of pitiful things on earth. But the whole world becomes a dunghill when we behold the incomparable God. That is so true. It is impossible to covet when you behold the incomparable God and you see the whole world as it is, a dunghill. And it's interesting that, that Paul links covetousness here with these other sins. I mean, of all things, sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness, what he says in Colossians 3, is idolatry. But there is a logical connection. The logical connection is this. Both covetousness and sexual impurity, sexual immorality, are the fruit of thinking that God and his provision is insufficient and inadequate for us. Whether it's a lust for persons or a lust for possessions. We are saying that God has not provided enough for us. Of course, when we say that, it sounds uh, quite horrifying, doesn't it? 
to, to utter those words. We generally wouldn't utter those words. We're too polite for that. That's exactly what the sexually immoral person is saying. God has not provided enough for me. I've got to go supplement him. It's what the, the person who covets is saying. God has not provided enough for me. And that's why I covet. Incidentally, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What is the 10th commandment? Thou shalt not covet. They go hand in hand. Idolatry and covetousness. And that's why Paul says to Christians, this must not be named. It must not even be named among you. Or as the NIV would say, there must not even be a hint of it. And he can command that because he knows the resources we have. He knows the redemption that we have in Jesus. He says, as is proper among the saints. As we saw last time, Paul always gives a reason for his command. Sometimes I'll tell my kids something. They'll say, why? And I say, because I said so. But, and that's a sufficient reason if you're God. But, he, but he's, he's better than that. He doesn't just say, because I said so. He always gives us a reason. So, for instance, why must we speak the truth to each other? Back to chapter 4, verse 25. Because we're members of one another. We owe that to each other. We're interconnected. We're family. Why was, must we not be allowed uh, anger to fester in our lives? Because it gives the devil an opportunity. We saw that in uh, verses 26 and 27. Why must our speech build up others? Because the risen Christ is building up his church and we are agents of that house building program. Why must we be speaking grace to each other? Because God has shown amazing grace to us. Why must we not have corrupting words and words of malice that grieve the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. Why must we forgive? Because God and Christ forgave us. That's what the end of chapter 4 tells us. Why must we be imitators of God? Because God has imitated, uh, or adopted us into his family. And here, he says, you must not allow sexual morality and impurity or covetousness to be even named because it's not proper among saints. What is a saint? Literally a holy one. You are holy. Christ has made you holy by his sacrifice for sin and by your union in him, the Holy One. And in this regard, notice in verse 4, we'll be quick here, let there be no filthiness. Now, that's any thought, word, deed, desire, motivation. For those of us whose authority is the word of God, he's writing to Christians, that would be shameful. That would be shameful. Including things we watch. Filthiness. He says, also put off foolish talk. Now, th this is the only place in the New Testament that this word foolish talk is used. But I, I think it's an interesting word. It's a compound word. It's easy to remember. It's 
uh, a compound, the prefix is moron. And, and the, the, the suffix is logos, word. It's the word of a fool. It's the word of a moron. Uh, it should not even be named among God's people. Foolish talk. Uh, and that, that includes anything that is contrary to Scripture. Slander, gossip, public shaming of people that you might disagree with, which I see often on social media these days. Evidently, on Twitter, Christians aren't guilty of slander if they rip somebody. Um, it's foolish talk. You never see Paul going, Nero the zero. Even though Nero was more wicked than any politician we've ever had. He says, put off crude joking or coarse jesting. It's it's the obscene words of a person who uses every opportunity to display their immoral wit. He says, these are out of place. He says, these are out of place for God's people. Paul is saying there are things that are proper and things that are not proper, given what Jesus has done for you, given what the Godhead has done for you. These are out of place for the saints. They, they eclipse God's glory in our lives. We can't steal God's glory. It's, it's infinite. It's eternal. It's unchangeable. But, but you can eclipse God's glory in your life. And, and so Paul's command to avoid even the smallest of compromises, coarse joking, foolish talk, reminds us of how sin evolves and how it can be overcome. What kills lust, what kills covetousness is starving it of fuel. It's the only thing that can kill it. Starving it of fuel. But I'll tell you what else kills it. That brings us to the last phrase of this passage, or verse 4. We're to put off what is improper for God's saints, and we're to put on what is proper. And here's what is proper from the second part of verse 4. But instead, I love that. He doesn't leave us in the dark. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. I'm surprised that that's what he says, to be perfectly frank. I was expecting something else, or at least the first time I pondered this. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. I mean, think about that. I mean, this is it's quite interesting. I mean, I, I'm not to be sexually immoral. I'm not to be vulgar. I'm not to be coveting. Instead, I'm to give thanks. Now, as I said earlier, lust for possessions, that's coveting, are people, that's sexual immorality, are the fruit of thinking that God is not enough. It's the fruit of thinking that God's provision for our lives is insufficient. 
So why does he say, instead, let there be thanksgiving? Paul says that's the anecdote. We know all about anecdotes these days, don't we? That's the vaccination. It's interesting. And that's why he would say, for instance, in Colossians 2, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the truth. And then he says, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul never gets away from it. And the older I get, and I just turned 53, the more convinced I am that growth in godliness is largely fueled by thanksgiving, a gratitude. And conversely, the opposite is true. Hence my title, Grace Generated Gratitude. Grace generates it. Gratitude is the, the knee-jerk response, the genesis, that is the beginning for godliness. Certainly, it begins with grace, but with regard to our responsibility in godliness, gratitude. You know, some, some virtues are godly traits because they reflect the character of Christ. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Those are virtues that reflect the character of Christ. Other virtues are godly traits because they exalt the glory of Christ. And when Jesus is exalted, nothing else is. That's gratitude. When Jesus is exalted, nothing else is. The Psalms contain 30 refer 35 references to giving thanks to God. 18 times in Paul's letters, 13 letters, he expresses thanksgiving to God. 10 times in his letters, he commands us as believers to give thanks. There are approximately 140 references in the Bible to giving thanks to God. And thus it should not be a shock to us, surprise to us, that ingratitude is one of the distinguishing marks of the unbeliever. Romans 1.21, although they knew God as God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they grateful. Of all ways to describe, and then Paul lays out this litany of sexual sin that flows out of a heart that's not grateful. It's dangerous to be ungrateful. It is leading you down a path of destruction. Or in, in 2 Timothy 3, where he's got those list of vices, at the very beginning of that chapter, in verse 5, one of those vices is to be ungrateful. And he, he, he mentions that with unholy. But when thanksgiving for who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus 
fills our hearts and our minds, there is no room for lust. There's no room for lust for people or possessions. There's no room for discontentment. In other words, you will kill no sin in your life that you have not first recognized as pardoned by the cross. Let me repeat that. You will kill no sin in your life that you have not first recognized as pardoned by the cross. When you think about the sins and the sin, our nature, that was punished in the God-man, that is the step, first step to killing sin in our lives. And so we give thanks, yes, for his daily provisions. I encouraged a fellow this week to, or, or, or a young lady this week to uh, make a grace journal. Just journal God's provisions and God's graces and, and remember his works of old in the process. It's the heart of, in, in the life of thanksgiving. But the ultimate provision is self-substitution. The Son of God. The one who was never sexually immoral, but was crucified for sexually immoral people. The one who was never impure, but was crucified for impure people. The one who never coveted one moment of his life, but was crucified for coveters. The one who let no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking come out of his mouth because it wasn't in his heart. And yet he's crucified for the filthy, for the foolish, and for the crude. That's our Savior. He was crushed for us. And now in thankful response, we live in a manner that is proper, given what he has done. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we thank you this morning for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for these commands which remind us, yes, we're under your authority, but remind us as well that you are invested in us. You love us so much that you warn us by warning. And then you resource us through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ and by the sealing and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that resourced, redeemed in Christ, and filled by the Spirit, you would make Fisherville Church a sexually pure church. Not just in position, that's who we are, we're saints. But in practice, I pray right now for families. I pray for marriages that are in trouble because of these sins that are unrepented of. Pray for repentance. I pray for young people who have determined to consecrate themselves to these things because the culture says it's okay. 
I pray that you bring repentance. I pray that you bring healing and restoration through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the jealous Holy Spirit who came to glorify Jesus in our lives. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen.